Welcome to the Mar Experience. My name is Matt Shedd. A significant part of the work that we do at Mar is with the family members of our clients. When someone arrives, his or her family is assigned a family counselor to work with them throughout their loved one's stay with us. Patrice Alexander worked as one of these family counselors at Mar for eight years before taking on her current position of clinical director. And Travis Ramsey is currently one of our family counselors at the Men's Center. Together, they talk with me about common themes they've seen over the years with the families of our clients. They also explain why they view addiction as a family disease that affects everyone, and they share hope about the possibility of recovery. I'm Patrice Alexander. I'm currently the clinical director here at MAR. I've been at MAR for about 14 years, um, started out in our admissions department, um, and then moved over to work with families. Um, so throughout my time here, um, working with families probably um, was the majority of the work that I've done. I did that for about eight years mm -hmm. and um, just moved into the clinical director role in 2016. I'm Travis Ramsey, I'm the family counselor over at the Men's Center. I've been here for five years and uh, interned with the Men's Center as a family counselor for the year before that. Uh, so about six years in total. Okay. So I think where I'd like to start um, is a lot of people on the podcast so far have talked about this as a family disease. That's something you hear a lot. So what helped me understand that? Um, what, what makes addiction or alcoholism a family disease? Yeah, it's, sometimes it can feel like a stretch because it's obviously not a disease of the body, but we like to see it as a disease of relationships and that it's impossible to really have a healthy relationship when some, with somebody who is addicted to substances. And uh, it's if you look at just a broader context of addiction, I don't think it's that much of a stretch really because even addiction has been um, – you know, as people understand addiction better, oftentimes they see it as an attachment issue with uh, people of significance in their life or feeling close to pe people and that they're not using the relationships that they have to address their needs. Instead, they seek a substance. And so even addiction itself is kind of a relational disorder mm. to a degree. Um, but then, of course, this is the family member who's suffering because... Mm -hmm of the person they love is addicted. If someone's listening and they're wondering, wait, maybe I'm, that could be me. What, what are some signs of suffering from the disease of the family disease of addiction? Certainly a lot of feelings. Um, they may not even know about it. So there's confusion, mm -hmm. there's anxiety. Um, family members may be frustrated and even angry that things don't seem to be matching up in their lives and with their relationships. Uh, it can certainly lead to um, self-doubt. They just kind of not trusting themselves. Um, and I think for the the person that um, is having the developing the disease, it doesn't start off, you know, um, no one really knows what's going on. You know, I don't think anybody chooses to become an addict or an alcoholic. You know, people choose to um, drink alcohol, certainly, or maybe even experiment recreationally or socially with other drugs. Um, but then that takes on a life of itself. So I think like some of the signs or symptoms would be like um, you're preoccupied with using or, you know, like um, you might be at work, but your mind is on like, okay, when is it going to be five o'clock? And, you know, when can I get to the bar, or the liquor store? And I think then, you know, that preoccupation, you know, you start having cravings um, and then you start the increased tolerance. You start needing more of the, the drug to have that same um, feeling that you got um, initially, like maybe from having a glass of wine. Now you need like three glasses and then before you know, it's the whole bottle and then it's two bottles. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it's a progressive, you know, disease. Um, and then it, that's where, like Travis was saying, it starts to affect relationships. It starts to affect like other areas of your life. Um, Is that how, it, what you kind of generally see with families as well, that it, there's a progression like that? 
Yeah, it's like this parallel process. Um, the family members go through some of those same symptoms. They become preoccupied with the person. Like, I wonder where they are. I wonder what they're doing. Um, you know, um, what kind of mental state or condition are they going to be in when I get home or, you know, when they walk through the door? You know, are their eyes going to be glassy? You know, am I going to smell alcohol on their breath? So they become preoccupied with the person um, and their increased tolerance um, is about that person's behaviors. Mm -hmm. Like, so it might be at first, you know, well, they're sarcastic or, you know, they're short with me. Um, I'm getting the cold shoulder. Uh, but then it becomes like more intense emotions to where the family member may be walking on eggshells and afraid to bring up you know, you know, have a conversation because they mm -hmm. don't know how this person's going to react or, you know, how this um, what behavior is going to happen next. So that unpredictability um, so that they're going through um, this a similar, you know, symptoms and the same process as the disease is progressing in the addict or alcoholic. I see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It kind of reminds you of the. I guess the metaphor of the frog in the water and you turn up the heat and the frog, I guess, will eventually die because it doesn't realize the temperature change. Right. And so many families, as they see their loved one, maybe misappointments or late to work or, oh, they didn't pay that bill. And it's just kind of like these isolated instances, you know, oh, we'll cover for that. We'll help out there. And then it just almost becomes routine. And before the family knows it, really, it's just kind of thinking, well, okay, well, I'll just do this. It'll make it easier for everybody. Um, so they kind of justify it. It makes sense. I love this person. They're going through a hard time in their life. They may not have all the answers to their questions, but it's enough to, well, okay, it's okay that I do this. And I remember one family I was working with, uh, they said, well, yeah, it's going to save a lot of money. You know, we've been giving them about $2,000 a month um, to you know, on top of his rent bill because they, they kicked him out, but then got him an apartment and then realized, well, he wasn't paying his bills. So we'll just make sure we give him this much money every month. And it just kind of, you know, this little ways that he wasn't taking care of himself turned into, you know, them basically funding everything in his life. Wow. And so coming to treatment was kind of like a relief for them because they're like, oh, I don't have to pay that money anymore, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like it's a, they're, they're saving money by right. sending them to treatment. Wow. It's, yeah. And also they don't worry as much anymore because it's like, well, at least I know where they are, you know? Uh -huh. um, I know that they're getting help. And so it's like that, you know, staying up late at night worrying and wondering, like, is the phone going to ring? You know, am I going to have to like, you know, get that phone call where I got to rush to like help them? you know, um, out in some way, um, when's the other shoe going to drop? Like those feelings kind of go away too. Mm -hmm. Like when the person like goes to treatment, it's like a, sometimes they feel a, a relief. Um, uh, but that's not always the case. Sometimes I've heard family members that I've worked with where it, it's a vacuum and then, you know, they're calling, um, you know, Mar every day, like what, what are they doing? You know, how are they sleeping? Like, you know, um, they have this, um, like gaping hole, like um, the things that they used to do on a daily basis, caretaking this person. Now it's like, well, they're not here anymore. So what do I do? Yeah. It's like someone who's had a career for 40 years and then retires. Like, what do you do with all that time? Yeah. You've been taking care of their loved one for full time. That's been your experience too? Sure. Well, they kind of wonder, is Mar really doing a good enough job? So that that sense of responsibility that has just sometimes that's gotten worse because of the addiction and and sometimes it's hard to even remember back when they were younger and you weren't doing those things or earlier on in the relationship and you actually weren't doing those things and they just so many times family members you know just a gradual um, adapting to the problem to where they're not fully aware of all the things they're doing, all the weight that they're carrying, all the responsibility they have. And so when they come to treatment, sometimes, like she's saying, all those things that they're doing, they think, well, I still got to do that. I still got to do that. And what about this? And what about is, you know, are they being taken care of here? You know, what about this need? They know everything that their loved one needs. Mm -hmm. And um, they may not have it written down or anything, but it's as it comes up on the calendar, oh, no, I forgot to this. You know, we haven't done this. And, yeah. And so, yeah. 
But at the same time, while that's happening, like they're not aware of their own needs. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you've stopped um, taking care of yourself and everything, every waking moment of your life is about this other person, you know. Um, and so that's the, the thing where this disease, why we say it's a family disease is because it does, it will take over like, you know, your identity becomes, you know, like wrapped up. And that's kind of where we talk about like codependency. Mm-hmm. It's like you now, um, you're dependent on um, this other, you know, like person, not the substance, but this, this person um, for different reasons, you know, mm-hmm. and somehow like your wants and needs and preferences are all wrapped up in like this other person, you know, it's dependent on their wants, their needs, their preferences. Mm. What are some of the things that people start neglecting in terms of taking care of themselves that you've seen? Um, I think what I've seen um, a lot of times, I think what would parents and with spouses um, is that uh, my feel how I feel like I might be in a, you know, wake up with like joy and, you know, peace, you know, some serenity. Um, but then I get a phone call, you know, um, from my loved one and, you know, I'm being like pressured to, um, do something like I got to stop what I'm doing and I need to give them some money or they don't have food or, you know, it could be any like need that they might have. And then all of a sudden now I'm, you know, in a panic state and I'm worrying about like, okay, well, whatever I had planned today, you know, I've got to put that on the back burner. Um, so if what I had planned today was something for me, you know, like um, an appointment or, you know, something like fun or relaxing. Now I can't do that. You mm. know, I, well, I make a choice that, uh, you know, I'm going to drop that or I'm going to put myself on the back burner and go and meet the need, you know, for my family member that just called. But it might not feel like a choice at the time. It probably feels like I got to. Oh, yeah. Get, this person needs me, right? Absolutely. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Especially for families of young adults who are just beginning to take on new responsibilities, probably expected to get a job or go to college. And so when their child, who's now not really a child, begins failing in ways that maybe they did in grade school or something, it's just not the same. And so it's hard to differentiate. And it's so easy to jump back into that caretaking, into that, oh, we have to solve this problem. Like, what are we we going to do? It's not a, what are you going to do? You know, so normally the family is looking forward to this moment, these days when a couple maybe is going to have some time to themselves again. And so they kind of have this, this longing, like I want to, you know, seeing their children go off to college, say, and looking forward to those free time, that free time. But then it's not working Mm -hmm. because the child is using drugs or drinking. And so it's easy for them just to go right back kind of into the old ways of, okay, let's figure this out and let's start over. Let's keep starting over. And I've seen a lot of families that that can go on for the young adults' entire 20s and sometimes into their 30s um, where the family is still trying to launch um, their loved one. But not necessarily understanding that they're fighting an addiction underneath the lost jobs and the failed classes and all of that. I see. So it can look like, oh, they're just having a hard time getting started. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It never looks like addiction. I think, yeah. You know, a lot of families I've worked with, that's the last thing that mm. you think. You know, you think like, okay. Because um, and even most of the um, clients that I've worked with, you know, um, have said like even before they ever took a, a their first drink or drug, they just felt different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the time they use it, they felt like, oh, ha, 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 I feel normal for the first time. And so even throughout early development, sometimes family members identify um, other like behavioral things um, or learning, you know, um, the, their way of thinking is just different. And so they jump in to try to like help because the goal is like, you know, for this person to be successful. And especially as a parent, you feel like it's my job to ensure that, you know, my child grows up and becomes successful in life. And so they'll do everything in their power, you know, um, whether it's a tutor. I mean, I've heard families that they've done more of the child's homework, 
you know, then, you know, because they saw them struggling um, just to help them, you know, like be successful. Um, so it starts off usually as something else before you realize like, oh, this is why, you know, this is happening. Um, How do you sell this to somebody who's like, that sound, what you're proposing, having a boundary there of not, you know, not responding every time he's in crisis. That's cold. That's I'm, my job is to to be there for him and to help take care of him. Is that ever a hard thing for for people to wrap their minds around? Yeah, it's that fear that it's not going to work, that they're going to fall flat on their face. And that's terrifying especially if they've done it in the past. It didn't work last time. Why is it going to work this time? Um, so that's a fear that a lot of family members really get in touch with as they begin recovery. Yeah, I also think for parents, especially even spouses, it feels counterintuitive. It feels like if I set this boundary, then I'm saying I don't love you. Right, You know. right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it is hard for people to, to wrap their mind around, um, you know, what we try to like educate them on. Um, it's, you're not saying you don't love this person. You're saying I love you enough to like detach, you know, because of your disease, you know, that if I keep doing the things that I've been doing, then I'm not like helping you um, to become healthy and successful. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I'm actually helping you stay sick. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, the, the issue like um that they are not realizing because yeah we're I think most of the times we're socialized you know um to be these like loving caring you know people mm -hmm. right to do good to help others mm -hmm. um you know that's just a part of like our culture you know this disease really takes advantage of that in that takes advantage of the of, of that loving caring yeah you know we we are I think that's a great uh, characteristic of America is we're giving people, um, we care for each other, we care for our neighbors and inside our families as well. And so we all rally when there's a problem. We, you know, we bind together and we support each other and um, we all kind of take it on to a certain degree. And so what happens in addiction is that it almost gets dumped in our lap. And you just have, sometimes there's a little bit of a, mm, I don't know if this feels quite right, but it looks so much like every other problem in our society that, well, okay, we'll help out. We'll do it. We'll make something happen here. And so we begin taking on these responsibilities for these other people who are struggling and, you know, we feel bad for their situations. We may not even know if they're using or not, but even certainly people with addictions, we want to help. And if we're not careful, we can begin taking more responsibility than they are. And in a way, we kind of undercut their own growth. And so this is where it's vital to see that we, we call it detaching with love. Because love is all about respect. And it's about dignity, honoring other people as well. And sometimes the best way to honor them or respect them is to give them what they're due. And that can be good and bad, you know, the kind of the results of their own behaviors to let them learn, to let them grow. Um, so in a way, we're giving our family members lives back to them. And yeah, some of it's just awful. I mean, it's bad. It doesn't look fun, but it's a very respectful thing. Um, it's treating them as an adult if they are one or even as an age appropriate child that, hey, you chose this decision or you got stuck in this. How are you going to get out? And, and trying to give that responsibility, um, those choices back to them. Yeah, that's really important. It's like that's exactly what you said. It's like, you know, really a way to show respect and like honor and like, you know, let them have their dignity. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, um, because somehow like when I feel like I have to take on this role as the fixer and the problem solver, um, then what I'm doing is I'm robbing, you know, this other person of, you know, being able to solve their own problem and, you know, being able to have that dignity and respect of, you know, figuring it out no matter how bad it, it might get or, you know, has become um, that they need 
that opportunity um, to like grow, you mm-hmm. know, themselves. And that's what recovery is all about, mm-hmm. you know, is that that old the cliche of living life on life's terms, right? You know, sometimes I think I've worked with um, parents, especially dads, you know, and they have sons and they want their son to be like this, you know, man's man. Um, and especially if that son is married, you know, I've had some dads, their um, adult, you know, son was, was married and had a family and wasn't doing well. And so dad kept writing the check mm. because dad wanted his son to be successful and to take care of his family. Um, but then I had to explain to dad, it's like, well, you're wanting him to be responsible. I was like, but you're not giving him the opportunity to take care of his responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Right. Like if you're writing the check, then he's not going to have that responsibility of a husband and a father to his wife and children because you're, I you're, see. you have that response. You're right. holding that responsibility. So it's like dad has to stop writing the check and, you know, let his son figure it out. Let his son take on that responsibility of his family. Overdraft on some bills if he has to or. Yeah. You know, yeah, you right. know to have to have that tough conversation with his wife about where the money went. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So often you think in your own life, those moments when you are most proud of yourself and they don't come from being on top of the mountain. It's the the times in the valley and the times you figured it out and you saw your way through and you can look at the risks that you took and those times when you were, you know, um, scared to death and you did it anyways and you kind of came through it and the things you've learned um, and what you gained out of those experiences. And, and so when family members come in and rescue, they do take away those opportunities uh, for people to feel like they can do it. Yeah, that reminds me of the Miley Cyrus song, It's the Climb, mm. right? Mm. It's like if, if just imagine you're trying to get to the top of the mountain, but like mom, dad, wife, whoever keeps interrupting that, yeah. right? They keep pulling you back. Now like, no, no, that's that's dangerous. Get down mm-hmm. from there. Right. You know what I mean? Like you you don't get to um actually arrive, you know, to reach your potential to get to the top of the mountain and feel that how victorious that is like mm-hmm. on your own, you mm-hmm. know, and oftentimes, you know, I've worked with a lot of families. Um, there's this resentment mm-hmm. that's like, you know, yeah, I might fall down, you know, but like, you're still like, even though you think you're protecting me, like I might need to fall down and scrape my knee so that I can heal from that. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then eventually like, let me get to the the top of the mountain on my own, you right. know, that it might not look the way that, you know, my view is not like your view. And no matter what you want from me, that might not be what I want for myself, you mm-hmm. know, and I've got to figure that out. When families come in here um, and you're working with them and you start seeing these patterns of how they've been codependent, what, how do you start addressing those? You know, I think the very first part is assessing exactly how much they're doing because it's easy to overlook stuff you're doing and so the beginning part is just looking at it and that's hard in and of itself i think we do that with our clients here Um, we spend a lot of time just saying look at what's happened look at every aspect of your use and so for family members as well just pay attention begin paying attention to all these these things and then begin asking yourself, well, how would you like it to be? Which is kind of a foreign question. Like, well, yeah, I didn't start doing this because I asked what I'd like. You know, it's, um, you know, they told me what they'd like or I thought what they would like. And so asking yourself, beginning to ask, well, what would you like? And I bet already guilt, they mm-hmm. start feeling guilty. Mm-hmm. Like, I, well, what about they're the one in crisis and they might die and on and on and on. Yeah, yeah. Like you, you already, I can yeah. imagine a parent already starting to feel guilty of like, I can't, I can't afford to think about myself there. You know. Yeah. But if you just begin to ask yourself what you would prefer, you don't have to do it. It's just kind of having a, well, I would prefer this. So one of the questions we ask is, what would you like your relationship to look like with our client? And this goes for any family member. And it kind of frees them up. You know, it's, you don't need to make any changes right now, but just ask yourself what you'd like to see changed. And it helps family members begin to ask themselves, 
how would I like this relationship? How would this relationship be enjoyable for me? I think that's one of the biggest gifts we give to our relationships is that we ask for what we need to make it enjoyable so that the other person feels like we really want to be with them, um, like we're enjoying our time with them. Rather than it's an obligation. or Exactly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, not every family is the same, you know, and so that what Travis said about assessing the family is is critical because I need to get to know like what, um, not all what you've been doing, but what you've been through, what you've witnessed, what you've experienced, what are your like concerns, um, you know, and as I get to know like um, the family member, then I can start to make like recommendations and trying things on to see how it fits. Like, you know, like, would you be comfortable doing this instead? So yeah, that, that would be, I think is important is like what I was saying, like for each individual family member to I start thinking and identifying, like, what do they want that relationship to be like? Because I think on, we know on some level, like when something's not right, um, we feel it. You know, I think we feel it m- more in our in our spirit and our gut, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, but our heart tells us to do do something anyway, you know, um, and then usually that that wins out because it might be uncomfortable to do the thing that you really feel like you need to do in your gut. Um, and so then, you know, when you don't honor yourself um, in that way by listening to like your gut or your spirit, um, that's going to cause some, you know, tension and discomfort, you know, and I think a lot of times, um, we, because we don't want to feel that tension and that discomfort and that anxiety, we go along, mm-hmm. we go along with, you know, the, the easier thing, oh, I'll just do it, you know, um, or I'll give in to what this other person, you know, is wanting. Um, and that's usually not good for anybody involved, you know, when that happens. And Matt, you kind of touch on an important issue too, because a lot of family members do want to know, okay, what do I need to stop doing? What's the formula? What... How can I help them? How can I not help them? What's good? What's bad? And yeah, give me a handout and do's and don'ts. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that kind of denies the relational disease. I mean, it comes back to the fact that this is a disease of relationships. It's not a formula that you fix. And so you have to be true to yourself. You have to discover your own needs, wants, what you, who you are and ask for that. And so if you begin to kind of cut back as a way to try to make sure that your loved one gets it or takes responsibility, then you're still just controlling the situation. It's just the opposite side. You've fallen in the other ditch on the other side of the road. And it can be just as harmful to the relationship. You can feel just as trapped by, oh, all these things, I can't do that, and I can't do that, you know, and feel Mm -hmm. guilty, and it's like you're having all the same feelings, you're getting angry about it on the other side. And so it is hard work because you can't lean, you can't ask somebody else to do the work for you. Um, So you have to ask yourself, you know, what's good for me? And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I got to be honest with how I feel in this relationship. Absolutely. I mean, that's just it. Boundaries aren't set by other people or by like, you know, the external like situation. Yeah. Boundaries are flexible so that I can make those decisions, um, you know, depending on like the circumstances and what's going on, you know, like it might be perfectly okay sometimes, you know, to um, allow like, uh, you know, uh, this person to, to live with me temporarily, um, and then sometimes that might be like the worst idea ever. I'm totally enabling if I allow you, you know, back in my home, it's not going to be good for me or you or anyone. Um, and so I might have to have a firmer boundary, you know, depending on the situation, you know, the circumstance. As the family counselor, what did your contact look like then? Like kind of walk us through that. Like, so new client comes in, where do you start? Sure. So our num- my number one goal working with families to begin with is to give them all the information they need about our program, about the disease, uh, understanding how their loved one got to this point, um, and, and helping them understand that it's, 
you know, there really is a change in their brain that they're sick and, and helping them just kind of accept that this is where it is. Um, do people have a lot of questions at that point usually like, or sure. And a lot of them are questions pertaining to what happens when we finish tomorrow, like where are we going here? Mm -hmm. Kind of like, and so we begin by just making sure they have the information that they need today. And that's crucial. A lot of times family members, they've been trying so many different options. They've been calling psychiatrists, doctors, coaches, counselors. They've been changing schools, education, helping their loved one change careers, changing houses, moving from one state to another. They have done so many things to try to address this issue that have all failed. And so, um, you know, to land here at Mar, they really don't know up from down. And so just helping them understand there is a program here, helping them understand about the 12 steps that our program is based on and what that looks like and how their loved one will go through it just generally. Uh, sharing about our phases and treatment and just kind of what to expect so that they can at least sit back and say, okay, my loved one's doing something about their issue and and I can breathe again. Um, from that point, like I mentioned assessment, we give a questionnaire to gain information about their life and their relationship and what the diseases look like for them, the behaviors that they've seen. Um, their own family history, kind of understanding, well, you know, maybe the way you reacted to this is really normal and no wonder, you know, um, and just trying to identify with them and help kind of meet them where they are. Family members have all different feelings. Some feel very guilty, others feel very angry. And so just validating um, the different reasons that they have those feelings. And then First thing is we really encourage family members to find a group, to find some support, and to begin hearing stories of other people that have been on this journey ahead of them. That is so crucial when you feel like you're all alone, like you've been fighting this, to go sit in a group and hear somebody else basically tell your story and and talk about how they've found a way through it and what they've learned about themselves is so encouraging and can be just a real um, support. And so finding those stories, finding those groups where you can hear other people's stories and then begin to share your own and feel accepted and normal is, is very encouraging. And then I always love to hear this, those stories and just those experiences every week or two from family members. And so we'll touch base with them, let them know a little bit about how their loved one is doing, um, but also begin to have a conversation about the changes they, they want to see ha- happen and what kind of things they can do to begin to make those changes possible, such as boundaries and sharing your feelings. Later on, we, um, you know, we, and we just monitor the, the relationship, phone calls. I like to hear how those phone calls are going when our Hear about it from the family member? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To kind of hear their take on, um, what the, phone conversations feel like? Are they any different? Or is it the same old, same old? Mm-hmm. And and then addressing little things that they can do differently. You know, yeah, they just complained about how bad Mar was. They didn't like it. And but that's normal. You know, I just tried to convince them that they need to stick it out. And and I begin talking about that. Well, is, how does that make you feel? Do you really like having that conversation, trying to change how they feel about their life? Well, no, but you know, I'm just used to it. And I'm like, well, Let's talk about ways that we can kind of change that. And so you can begin enjoying your relationship with your loved one. Yeah, the only thing I will add to what Travis has said, because, I mean, he nailed it, um, is that when I worked with families, the number one thing that I felt was my um, purpose was to help them get in touch with themselves, um, to focus on themselves and to start talking about themselves. Um, I recall like several families I've worked with, um, initially those first, um, few weeks phone calls are focused on their loved one. They want to know what their loved one's doing. You know, even when I would during the intake, want to bring them back to my office and say like, tell me what this has been like for you. Um, it was all about their loved one and, you know, the consequences they've had and 
what they've been doing and things like that. And I would listen, of course. Um, but then I would want to know like, okay, you've told me all this stuff about your loved one and how they're feeling and, and how they've been doing. And what, um, but I want to know about you. I want to know, like, how are you feeling? Hmm. You know, what has this been like for you? This probably sounds like a strange question for them at oh, the time. Yeah, absolutely. I've had so many family members that when I really, you know, um, like kind of shine a light on that, like, you know, everything you've said. And, and sometimes they talk anywhere from five to 10 minutes to like 30 minutes, almost to an hour, have to cut them off. It's like, you know, you've been talking about your loved one but the question was about you how are you doing and what's this been like for you and there's this like silence you know and sometimes even tears rolling down where no one has asked me that or I don't even know what you know how what I'm feeling like I had one woman once say I have feelings and like it was like a question more so than it was like a statement and I'm like Yes, you have feelings because she knew exactly how her loved one, you know, felt. She knew exactly. She, Oh, he's angry. He's this, blah, blah, blah. Like she knew everything about him. But I was like, I want to know about you. Um, so I think, yes, we give them everything Travis said, you know, in terms of what to expect, you know, throughout treatment and information about, you know, our programs, our services and what their loved one's going to get, but also about, you know, what's available to them and definitely encouraging them that, and letting them know up front, we're going to be encouraging you to get support for yourself and to, you know, uh, whether that's through one of our support groups or Al-Anon, um, you know, but I also let them know that I'm going to be focusing on you. I want to know how you're feeling. Um, we call the first phase of our program for our clients feeling school. And so um, because we understand that, you know, um, people with the disease of alcoholism and addiction are, are using um, this to change how they feel, you know, like, oh, I don't like, you know, feeling, you know, this pain or discomfort or um, whatever it is. I know what'll make that go away, you know, or, Hey, it's time to celebrate. I'm feeling great. You know, I know what'll make me feel even better, you know? Um, so it's all about trying to manage feelings through, um, using a chemical. Um, and for family members, sometimes it's about managing feelings, um, by, you know, either keeping busy to distract from their own feelings, um, so that they get into like caretaking and, you know, focusing on other people. So they don't have to focus on, you know, themselves or their own feelings, um, so I see like my work, you know, as a family counselor is to really help them focus on themselves and get in touch with their feelings, um, because it's really hard to set boundaries or to know what your wants or needs are if you don't know like how you feel, mm -hmm. you know, if you haven't checked in with yourself to, to pay attention to like, what are some of your behaviors, you know? Yeah, because then the 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 reference point remains external. If there's no sense of what's going on with my feelings, and still the the alcoholic or addicted loved one is still running the show, right? Exactly. And oftentimes, people um, there's that misconception that like, well, I'm feeling this way because this other person is doing this. And sometimes it's like, yeah, maybe, but you're also, your, your feelings are, could be because of what you're doing. Like you're not saying no, you're not setting boundaries. Like, you know, you're um, taking on more and more of this person's responsibilities. And so now you're feeling exhausted. You're feeling resentful. You're feeling like, when do I get a break? Like, when is this going to end? When do I, you know? Um, poor me, you know what I mm -hmm. mean? But it's like, okay, there's, you have a part in that too. Like mm -hmm. if you change maybe some of your, um, t behaviors, like you change your feelings as well. Mm. Yeah. I, I kind of throw family members uh, humdinger right from day one. Normally when I give them the questionnaire that kind of begins the process, I ask them to do something good for themselves before they even start the questionnaire. And it's so hard. Um, very few family members actually do it because it feels counterintuitive. But and but I try to help them understand that there's a reason. It's not just for the fun of it. It's <laughs> it's a way to show 
that they are in this, that they're about taking care of themselves just the same way they really desperately want their loved one to begin taking care of themselves. And so it's a way to begin showing by example that they can put the focus on them and take care of themselves as well. Um, but it's hard because a lot of them don't know what to do. <laughs> I think it's so hard too, Travis. Don't you think like um, because it's like, oh, I'm going to feel so guilty if I go do something yeah. like pleasurable for me and my loved ones miserable. Yes. You know, it's like yeah. that whole, again, like that's not detaching, you know what I mean? Like I can detach with love and, you know, you could, um, because of your disease, like you're in treatment, you're, you know, um, maybe miserable, you know, but it's okay for me to go and like do something for me, you know, that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that I don't love you that, you know, that if I go off and do something fun and I've had wives, like one of the things we do here, um, we have recreational therapy that's built into the treatment and, um, we have a property up on Lake Alatoona and the men go there every Wednesday. And, um, for the first few weeks, they are not, um, there's no phone contact and I'm usually the person talking to families um, during that time period. And then their loved one gets phone privileges. And then the family member finds out they've been spending every Wednesday at the lake. And then they're like upset. What are you being? You're like having fun. And, you know, I'm here trying to pay all these bills and take care of the kids and do this. And they're upset. And it's just like, well. You could go do something fun too, you know, um, but somehow that feels guilty. Like if I go do something fun or do something for me. Yeah. Like who's going to be responsible then? I've, you know, who's going to hold everything together? Like, yeah, there's that used to that role, I imagine. Yeah. 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 Which there is truth in that. Yeah. And it's hard. Uh, oftentimes life gets a little harder than easier when your loved one comes into treatment, especially if they've been the wage earner. And there's all different levels uh -huh. of the severity of the disease with our different clients. And so sometimes family members are left, you know, trying to deal with things that, uh, that they needed that person to do. Um, and so it's a balance. It, it is. is really hard to take care of yourself when, you know, your loved one is in treatment and isn't maybe able to do the things that they used to be able to do. And so in a way, um, in a way it really asks everybody to step up. It, it can't just be our client. It has to be the family members. And, um, and that's hard. Like it really requires energy and effort. Um, recovery is not easy. Um, so, I kind of understand, you know, every family member comes from a different place. And if they want things to change, then they are going to need to change things too. And the more that they're able to change, it's actually gives their loved one and their relationship with their loved one a better chance to change. Almost the same as their loved one's work here at Mar. I mean, I think it's just as important as the work that the addict or alcoholic has to do in recovery. Mm -hmm. That, you know, we say it's a family disease, so the whole family um, is a part of the recovery process as well. Mm -hmm. And if the family starts making changes, especially if their loved one goes into a treatment program, um, then by the time that loved one comes out of the treatment and they're ready to rejoin the family, like if everybody is doing something different, um, man, that person just has um, a much higher success rate, you know, than if um, I go to treatment and my family is still, you know, um, taking on all the responsibilities. Like if they haven't changed, there's been no, absolutely no change. Mm -hmm. You know, they're still ready to rescue me and enable me and, you know, um, haven't educated themselves about the disease, hasn't gone to Al-Anon. They've just been waiting for me to get done with my treatment. Then we have, you know, there's a higher risk of relapse, you know, mm -hmm. not that the family is not responsible, like uh, like what Travis said, the family, you know, what they learn in Al-Anon, those three C's, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, you can't cure it, um, but you can absolutely be a part of the recovery process, you mm -hmm. know, by making changes and, you know, taking care of yourself. Yeah, I once was working with a couple and the client was a husband 
and he was in early recovery and I was doing some couples work with them and asked them, what does the other person do that shows you that they love you? And I was so surprised to hear our client say, when she gets up early every morning and goes and works out. And I just didn't understand. I said, what is that? And he said, it just shows that she cares enough about us to really keep herself in good health. So what you do for you is a gift that you give to your relationship. And the other person notices. Our clients see it. And they are so encouraged when they see their family doing good things for them. What's an example that if if you, that you feel comfortable talking about of a fan like a, a family system that was so not working when the person came in that on the other end of it where you've you've kind of seen the whole family enter into into recovery? Um, the first one that jumps out like with me it was a, a wife that um, she did had I don't think she had any clue that. Um, about the severity and the degree of her husband's alcoholism um, until he ended up in the hospital. And the doctors there, you know, and social workers kind of was like, you know, um, it's his alcoholism, his drinking, he's got to stop drinking. You know, if he continues to drink, you know, he's going to die. And she was just like, what? Like, you know, um, and they recommended long-term treatment that he not go home from the hospital, that he go come to Mar was one of the places that was recommended. And he didn't want to do it. He was not ready, you know, and, and she like struggled. She had no clue. She's just like, well, you know, if he doesn't want to do it, then like, what, what can I do? And it was the social workers there at the hospital that, you know, told her that, you know, she could say, I'm not comfortable like living with you if you're not going to follow the doctor's orders. They're recommending that you go to treatment. If you come home, like me and the kids are leaving or whatever boundaries she was ready to um, set in place. By the time I met with her, he did end up coming tomorrow. By the time I met with her, that was one of the things she shared with me is that she had never thought about that she did have a say. She had been concerned about his drinking, you know. Um, they had argued about it, and so she, but she never felt that she had a say until that um, social worker talked with her in the hospital about like that she could set boundaries and that she could say no, you know, that she could do something different. Throughout the course of his treatment, she got really involved in you know doing her own work, and um, you know we're a minimum ninety day program. And by the time the 90 days was over, I mean, she was so um, into her own recovery that she was at a point, she kept discovering um, things that he had kept hidden from her. And she was angry. And she knew that she needed to work on her anger um, and that him coming home was not going to be like a healthy environment for their children. Although he wasn't drinking, you know, he had gotten in recovery and was doing better. Um, they were local and he was planning to come back tomorrow for continued like groups and, you know, they were going to do counseling and all that. She was just like, I'm not ready to live with you because, you know, her head was out of the sand and she realized, you know, all of the lies and, you know, deception and things like that. And she didn't want, um, like I said, him coming home to like her being angry, you know, and she needed, she worked with her sponsor. She um, took care of herself and they got to a place. He went to our extended program. And by the six months time, like they were ready to live together again. You know, she had grown and was comfortable um, setting boundaries and letting him know. And also like getting the kids in a routine and, you know, the home environment was totally different. And she basically throughout that um, six months was letting him know, like, this is how it's going to be like when you come home. So while he was recovering here at Mars, she was also recovering. Yes. That's a great example. Yeah. My story, too, is with a, a wife and her husband. And um, fairly recently, they had only been married um, for maybe four or five years when he came into treatment. And she knew that he struggled with alcohol. And, and he had been in and out of treatments in their short time that they had been married. And so it was just a dream that had been crushed. And she was really at her breaking point, not sure if the relationship was going to last. And she was mad. 
Um, I couldn't blame her. So, you know, to begin with, we just kind of did some of the usual things we do and encouraged her to find a group. And he was very fearful of losing her. And so he wanted to go overboard to try to win her back to make sure that, you know, she was still there close to him. And while she kind of said, well, yeah, I'm, you know, not going anywhere, it just turned her off. It made her mad because the more he focused on her instead of getting his life back together, the more she felt like she was being controlled and, um, and, and like he was just off on some vacation and not really doing the work he needed to do. So she, she closed down communication. Mar already has our own, you know, limits and boundaries as far as phone calls and stuff like that. She made it even more strict. She said, I don't even want to hear from you uh, to her own husband. And she was just so upset. And so she began going to some groups. And the more she went to groups, she realized, I have a story here too. Like there's a lot of things in my life I've never looked at. And, um, you know, she got asked questions. And I think she even got a sponsor in her Al-Anon group and just started getting into the program. And slowly he came around in treatment and began seeing his stuff and really doing some really deep work. And he was an older gentleman, so he had years of trauma and unhealthy relationships and began seeing new ways to communicate, new ways to be vulnerable in ways he had never been vulnerable and started opening up to her. And as he did, she she said, I wanna be able to open up to you how you're opening up to me. I just don't know how. And she started learning how to do that, working with her sponsor and kind of seeing her own fears in recovery and what how things might change. And um, their relationship has just been so fun to watch as they've grown closer, uh, as they both work their program and then bring that back home. And there's still some pretty strict boundaries. They can be pretty short with each other. And, um, you know, kind of some of the old stuff comes out, but um, they have just an appreciation that they're both in recovery and they're both learning and they're doing it together. Um, so it's been fun to see. That's beautiful. I love that. Um, so, and I, another thing I was just thinking about, like a lot of this stuff applies to people, whether it seems like a lot of this would apply, whether you're addicted, whether you're person in terms of detachment and boundaries, whether your loved one has an addiction or not. Right. I mean, can can people suffer? I guess my question is, can people suffer from codependency that when no one has a substance abuse problem in the family? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think so. I think, you know, codependency really is it's a learned behavior um, and it starts in your like family of origin. You know, um, you know, sometimes um you know, we're just like raised to like um, be selfless, right? Mm. That somehow you're selfish if you focus on yourself, if you, you know, put your needs first and, you know, take care of yourself. Um, and so it's about, you know, always being there for someone else, always, you know, um, helping. And so then you get into a relationship and you're this selfless person that's, you know, so like giving and, you know, wanting to be there for other people, wanting to please others, like, you know, this people pleaser um, that you've never really learned that it's okay to, um, you know, be interdependent. Like we weren't created. I mean, we are social beings. We weren't created to be um you know, completely like anti-dependent where I don't need anybody else. And it's all about me. I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Um, or the other way where it's like, I can be, you know, nothing is about me. Everything is about you, right? Those are the, the polar, you know, extremes. Um, and that's where codependency kind of lives. And that's also where the disease of addiction lives. It thrives in that type of atmosphere and that type of relationship. Like Travis said, it's a relational disease. Um, and, you know, being in the middle, you know, being um, like healthy where, yes, um, I do have needs and wants that um, can be met in relationships, you know, and then I have my needs, wants and preferences that it's my responsibility to like take care of and to meet those needs, you know, not totally depend on others, you know, for those things. Mm. What specifically about Mar 
keeps you coming back here? Like what's special about Mar to you? For me, it's just a focus on the clients. Um, you know, it's if we are really kind of person centered um, and a relational you know, model of treatment, you know, the therapeutic community is this relational model. And so everything that Travis and I have been talking about today, um, we've actually like experienced, I'll speak for myself, I've actually experienced it, you know, as a result of being an employee here. Um, I've learned how to set boundaries in my own life. Like it's, it's helped me not just grow professionally as a counselor, but just like personally, like, um, it's like everything I went to school for and studied and learned, like I kind of had this vision of like, this is the kind of counselor I want to be like when I grow up, or this is the kind of, you know, what I envision like treatment is supposed to look like. And, you know, I've worked at other places where it was all about, you know, the census or insurance or, you know, like the very um, busy and, you know, um, kind of routine, like, you know, cross all these T's, dot all these I's. And while Mar is very structured, there's a lot of flexibility within that structure. Um, and as a counselor, I've been allowed to have that autonomy and be like creative in terms of like the group work that I've done, the individual work that I've done with people and the families. Um, and that's just been something that I've been very appreciative of. And it kind of keeps me coming back. I've been allowed to like, you know, um, grow and just seeing other people really that being long-term too and seeing a client and or the family like on day one and then seeing them like 90 days later. And it's like, wow, I can't believe it's the same person, you know, being able to actually see like recovery happen and, and healing happen. And like, this is like a place where I've been able to witness that kind of health and recovery happen in people's lives, not just my own, you know, I've benefited from that as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like to use the phrase surrogate family um, for our clients in that our clients get to experience just a very real, scary, adventurous um, living system that is alive in their communities that teaches them how to relate to other people and as they can hopefully share those skills that they learn with their families, I don't know if there's really another program I've ever seen that does that. And it's fun. It's um, something new every day. It's real. I, I really feel that it gets to the core of what a lot of our clients deal with, whatever it is. And they, they all have their different needs. And just that secure base that they're able to launch from and really start over. Um, you know, that's kind of one of the messages that I'm able to share with families is that this is a, this is a start over. This is a chance to begin life and um, in a new sober way. And for me, it's just fun to be a part of that and to help families navigate that. But it's also been a secure base for me. And in that Mars counselor uh, community team, um, we really work with each other quite a bit and give a lot a lot of feedback and it's been a great place to grow as a counselor to feel safe um, to take risks and to begin to work with clients in ways that are creative and truly lead to change mm -hmm. so what would be of of the things that you've learned here at mar and it doesn't have to be a long answer but of the things that you've learned here at mar what's something you would pass on? I think I would say um, that self-care is not selfish. That, you know, when you learn to take care of yourself um, initially, like it might feel like you're being selfish or that, you know, um, you're being mean. Um, but that's not the case. And I think the more you do it, the more you realize that. It's like the example that Travis gave, like that woman getting up and exercising every day. That's her self-care. And, you know, her husband sees that and he gets to benefit from that, you know, um, that, you know, that that would be it. That self-care is not selfish. I guess I'd just say you're worth it. And far too many people have settled 
for less than they deserve, less than they want. And whether you're staff, client, family member, raising your expectation for yourself, you're worth it. And, it, and, it's, and it's a worthy endeavor, your own life. Thanks for listening to the Mar Experience. If you want to stay in contact with us, you can look for us on Facebook or Twitter. We also have a lot of free resources, videos, and articles on our website about the disease of addiction, how it affects families, and other topics related to treatment. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.